You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. As we mentioned earlier when we talked about the prayer partners, grace is on the move. We as a community are moving into the future that the Lord has set before us. And we're currently, if you haven't been with us in a while, or this is your first Sunday here, we're currently in the midst of a sermon series that's designed to share the narrative of our perceived future together. So far, in the last couple of weeks, we've considered our identity as grace, what we call the who, who we are. And for the last three weeks... We've explored our why is grace, our purpose, our cause, what gets us up in the morning, our reason for being for such a time as this here in Orange County. And at the heart of it all is this biblical theme of flourishing. And just to recap very briefly, if you haven't been with us, biblically, flourishing is about learning, growing, maturing, and becoming our best selves as God created us and designed us to be. And that kind of thriving, this kind of thriving that we're talking about is only possible because of the cross, the resurrection, and Pentecost. Because Jesus cleared the way. Because Jesus revealed the truth and has given us the life we were always meant for. We do not flourish through our own wisdom or strength, but rather as we are rooted in Christ, following and learning from him, and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit take on the habits of Jesus, we gradually become like him. And this kind of gradual maturity and growth is not individualistic. This is where we ended last week. It's not individualistic. It's not just about me. It also includes and benefits those around me. Biblically, we flourish when we help others flourish. Today, we turn to the how of our missional narrative, what we would consider our guiding principles is grace. And if you look at the backside of your bulletin, you'll see the who that I mentioned briefly, the why that I just talked about, and then the how, those guiding principles. And these guiding principles are designed to keep us focused to ensure that how we get where we are going lines up with who we have been called to be and become along the way. Four guiding principles, you'll see four, got that right, four guiding principles have been identified as we follow Jesus into the future that he's prepared for us. And again, understanding and embracing these principles will allow them to inform and direct our thoughts, our decisions, and our actions as we move forward together. Now, I want to be clear as you look at them, if maybe you've glanced at them already, each of these values were not defined in a vacuum. We didn't just make these up. Like the first two that we're going to explore today, all of them developed out of a careful observance of Jesus, of how he lived out the path set before him, and what principles he elevated as driving his decisions and his interactions like this one. And with that in mind, I invite you to consider the passage that's before us today from Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It reads, as as Jesus went on from there... He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. 
While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here are our first two guiding principles, what we're going to be looking at today. And they come out of passages like this one. They are, everyone is welcome and love without conditions. Everyone is welcome and love without conditions. Here in this encounter, what we just read from Matthew, and there are other passages just like this one, Jesus makes it clear, everyone is welcome. Everyone is invited to come and see to come and follow him, to come to the table, to the feast, to the party, to enter the kingdom of God. But as you heard, and this doesn't happen only once, the religious leadership of Jesus' day balked at such inclusivity. They openly question and at the same time rebuke Jesus for engaging tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors and sinners were perceived as the outsiders of their society. They didn't belong and were to be avoided because they were morally corrupt. Their beliefs, their practices, their actions were deemed as potentially dangerous, so they were unwelcome. To the religious leadership, for Jesus to engage and keep company with people like that threatened to damage the well-being of the community. I hate to tell you, but not much has changed in 2,000 years within the church. Please keep your eyes on the screen. No, step aside, please. No way, not you. I don't think so, no. That's actually a commercial from a mainline denomination that was on national television several years ago. And it, I don't think it's exaggerating what many have experienced in the last few decades at the church. It's very reflective of exactly what you see in this passage, the attitude of the religious leadership here. But notice, Jesus will have none of it. Jesus boldly responds, do not miss this. The heart of what he is doing is not for the sake of pruning the guest list, but rather it's for opening up access for anyone looking and longing to belong. From the very beginning of his ministry, in his own hometown, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus insists he came to invite those who have been excluded, those who have been marginalized, those who were cast aside. Quoting the prophet Isaiah, Jesus goes even further than this. 
Not only identifying the scope of the kingdom of God as targeting those who have been labeled as outsiders, the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed, Jesus also declares that through his presence, the doors of the kingdom are wide open. Everyone is welcome to come on in. And for the rest of his teaching and ministry, all over the gospels, all four of them, this kind of welcome to lepers and Roman centurions, to a person of a different faith, like a Samaritan, as well as to a Syrophoenician woman of a different ethnicity, this kind of welcome is what we see Jesus enact for everyone. And Jesus' invitation to belong, by the way, isn't where a select few get to participate, but others must sit quietly in the back of the room and only observe. No, everyone is welcome for Jesus. And that means everyone gets to participate. Consider this. Two of the people that Jesus chose to be his disciples were on completely opposite sides of the political spectrum. First, we have here, who he's called, Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector. It was his responsibility to exact taxes from his own people to pay the Roman government. Then, as still today, there was widespread abuse in the taxing system. It was widely accepted and at the same time universally despised that tax collectors in Jesus' day demanded more money than was owed, thus making away with a great profit. So not only was someone like Matthew considered a traitor to his homeland and his kinsmen, he was also regarded as an unethical cheater as well. He is the last person anyone would have expected to have been invited but Matthew's not alone in being viewed this way. On the other side of the aisle, Jesus also called Simon to be one of his disciples. Simon, we're told, was a zealot, a political party that worked to incite violence and rebellion against the Roman Empire in order to expel them from the Holy Land by any means necessary. Inarguably, the zealots were among the first expressions of terrorism, Anyone who sided with the Roman Empire were therefore enemies and targets of their violent attacks. And most would have assumed a terrorist like Simon wouldn't have been welcomed by Jesus. And yet, church, Jesus calls both of them enemies to each other and each in their own way living in opposition to God. And catch this, he calls them not just to belong, but to follow him. Jesus invites them, sit in this for a second, to be his disciples. Jesus welcomes them to become disciples who make disciples of others. And such radical inclusivity doesn't stop there for Jesus. Just in case we believe falsely from this encounter we read in Matthew or others like them, that the Pharisees, the religious leadership by their actions and hostility would be deemed unwelcome by Jesus, let's not forget Nicodemus. Nicodemus, the Pharisee, who also became a follower of Jesus. At first secretly, under the cover of night, but if you pay attention, eventually daring to go public when he openly helped Joseph of Arimathea ensure that Jesus had a proper burial. And let's not overlook Saul, Saul, the self-righteous Pharisee who violently persecuted and executed others, some of the first followers of Jesus in the name of God, only to later be called Paul 
and to become, perhaps, think about that, the greatest evangelist of the invitation of the gospel and the kingdom. Jesus invites everyone. Everyone is welcome because each of us, all of us together have been made in the image of God. Yes, that image is obscured. Yes, it's marred. It's broken by our rejection and rebellion toward the Lord. But that divine impression, that indelible birthmark remains intact. We, all human beings, remain intrinsically valuable and worthy of love in spite of our brokenness. All are welcome. You don't have to be a certain color. You don't have to speak a specific language. You don't have to live in a certain country or belong to a certain political party. You don't have to be a certain gender or sexual orientation. You don't have to belong to a certain income bracket. You don't have to meet a minimum requirement for good behavior or good deeds. You don't have to have a clean criminal record because the gospel is not primarily, firstly, about what we do or who we are. The gospel is fundamentally and foundationally about who Jesus is. God with us and for us. The gospel fundamentally and foundationally is about what God in Christ has done and continues to do for us. Our value, our dignity, our worth, Our sense of belonging derived not from how we look, not from the level of our IQ, not from anything we've done or left undone. Our sense of belonging, our worth, our dignity, our value come from whose we are. The one who created us and claims us as his own. Our heavenly father who came down to rescue us and fix all the brokenness, all the chaos inside of us. Our Heavenly Father who in Christ died so that we might live and come home. I stop for this moment because I don't take it as a given that all of you hear this all the time. I'm more and more sensitive that for some of you, this really still hasn't broken through. But whoever you are today, here, watching on the live stream, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, or whatever has been done unto you, hear the word not of Chris, but of the Lord. You are welcome here. You are welcome here. You belong. Jesus didn't just teach this. He enacted it in his own life. There's this powerful moment where Jesus cleanses the temple as a dramatic expression of welcome as an act of defiance against the abusive and oppressive legalistic religion that barred the doors against undesirable people. The part of the temple that Jesus cleansed was the portion intentionally set aside for the use of foreigners and non-Jews. Commerce and greed had literally overtaken that sacred space set apart to make faith in God inclusive of all people. And so Jesus turned the tables. He cleared the path for all to worship as God intended. And it was a controversial action that became part of the justification for his death. And yet, even in his dying moment, right? Even in his dying moment, Jesus stretched his arms wide as though embracing all of us and declared our forgiveness because we did not realize what we were doing. To the very end, Jesus invited everyone as welcome into the kingdom 
For God showed his love for us in this, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. My friends, through Jesus, the wall of hostility is broken down and all are welcome. God is calling people from every nation on earth into this genuine, blood-bought, eternally perfect unity. Everyone is invited by Jesus. Hear me, believers, skeptics, the curious, the brokenhearted. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, as Christ's ambassadors, our invitation must be the same. The door must be just as wide open. Because if we bar the doors of the church, we are actually placing ourselves, not others, on the outside looking in. When we treat others like they don't belong, we are telling Jesus we don't belong to him. Everyone is welcome here. We are now the chosen ones sent into the world on his behalf, filled with his spirit to represent him in the places where we live, work, and play. We reflect this invitation of Jesus, the welcome of Christ, by loving without conditions. Love without conditions. This is our second principle, our second guiding principle. It's important, love without conditions. It's important because we need to realize, apart from God, our love is conditional. Apart from God, our love is conditional. In the brokenness of our humanity, we are distrustful of those who are not like us or who we perceive as a threat to our way of life. Therefore, our affection, our compassion, tend to be limited, reserved only towards those people with whom we are comfortable and agree. Jesus explicitly calls out this tendency of ours when he notes the lack of effort and the obviousness of loving those who love us. Jesus says it's, what, it's, it's easy to love those who love you. And in that same teaching, Jesus points us to a different kind of love. A love that includes our neighbor. A love that even goes so far as to embrace our declared enemies. Now, if we're honest, I mean, seriously, this does not sit well with most of us. And frankly, it doesn't make much sense. And this is because... Get ready for it. We believe acceptance equals agreement. Acceptance equals agreement. That is, to love or accept a person or their argument is to agree with them. And as a result, we cannot love or accept that person for fear of being seen as agreeing with them. This is precisely what is bothering the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in this passage. Jesus is sitting down at the same table and breaking bread, an act of love and intimacy, fellowship, right? With tax collectors and sinners. Loving such morally corrupt people in this way, in their eyes, was an affirmation of them, of how they were living, of what they were doing. And their frustration comes in this moment because Jesus has been doing this kind of thing, loving like this for a while now, and this kind of love is catching on. More and more of these sorts of people, tax collectors and sinners, are gathering to him, seemingly in some numbers. But Jesus refuses 
to put any limits on the love that he is offering. Instead, I wonder if you caught this, Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting an oft-repeated word from the prophets. He is telling the religious leaders to pay closer attention, to engage in more study, because those prophetic words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, reveal the character of God, which is love. Beloved, God doesn't side with Christians only. God doesn't side with Christians only. Our Heavenly Father initiates and advocates on behalf of all humanity. For God so loved the world. We all know that verse. We see it quoted. For God so loved the world. All the world. When we withhold love, acceptance, in order to show disagreement, we immediately create an us versus them situation. When we view one another in this way, we immediately begin to divide people into categories. Categories marked by labels that are built on stereotypes. When our engagement with the other person is defined not by love, but rather what side we and they stand on, we treat each other conditionally. Our love becomes shaped more by the things we are for, And our love becomes withheld from the things and by association the people we're against. And us versus them mentality is ultimately rooted not in love but in fear. When we don't understand something or someone, we tend towards fear. And fear has a polarizing effect on people. It never brings people together. It only separates people more and more. Fear separates. Fear keeps the other at bay. Fear leads to anger, and anger leads to hate. And from that place of hate, fear-based rhetoric pushes the other further and further away. Fear keeps us isolated from each other. But there is a better way, as Paul writes. Love, perfect love, casts out all fear. Hear this. Some of you need to hear this. There is a difference between agreement and acceptance. There is a difference between agreement and acceptance. Love must never be defined as agreement. Love must be greater than our human definition, our contemporary culture's insistence that love is only experienced when one socially, politically, and religiously agrees with the other. Love like that is conditional. Love like that can't go the distance. Love like that won't take us anywhere. It hasn't taken us anywhere in thousands of years of history because that we, it hasn't taken us any place we've already been. We always end up back in the same space, which is apart, not together. Unconditional love, divine love, the kind of love in whose image we were created is what we need. When it comes to human worth and dignity, there is no us or them. There is no us or them. There is only God come down, God become human, God with us and for us in Jesus Christ. Love like that, the love of Christ comes without requirements 
It comes even without agreement on our part. Think about this. At a time when the basic thrust of religion was to divide people into us and them by loving or not loving others accordingly, Jesus spent his whole life loving everyone. Again and again, Jesus lovingly encountered women, children, foreigners, the unclean, social outcasts, the sick, even thieves, outlaws, and murderers. And Jesus did not let their faults or any disagreements to separate them from him. Jesus loved all, everyone, even unto death. Love like that. Perfect love incarnate, right? Love as it was meant to be. Fully and unreservedly expressed, the love that is God in Christ is what conquered the grave. Because love without conditions is love that cannot be defeated. It is love that is always victorious. Beloved, as followers of Jesus, we must love as we have been loved by Christ, without conditions. We must humbly wrestle with and we must fight to reverse the representation that Christians are against people who don't believe like they do. We need to recognize this is the first impression of many who are not believers. This is the impression that many who are not believers have experienced from so-called followers of Jesus. Even if we're not guilty of this representation of Christ ourselves, Hear this, we are at least guilty by association with believers who have misrepresented Jesus with harsh, abrasive, prejudicial, hateful, condemning, or withdrawn words, attitudes, and actions. Loving like Jesus, this is a hard one, means taking the burden of that responsibility. As far as it depends on us, to replace pictures of a false Jesus with pictures of the real Jesus. The Jesus who came out of love, who, no matter what, encountered each and every person with love and who lovingly gave his life for all. Love without conditions is rooted in acceptance, not agreement. Love without conditions is rooted in acceptance, not agreement. It is possible to be in a relationship with someone and not agree on decisions. Welcome to marriage. (laughs) Welcome to family. Therefore, if that's true, it's possible to be in a relationship with someone and not agree on decisions, then my love for another person is found in my acceptance of them, not my agreement with the choices they make or may not make. Love without conditions means we never think in terms of us versus them. Love without conditions means instead we always work towards us for them. Us for them. Loving like that means we see and we accept the faults of others just as they see and accept our faults. And rather than allow those faults to separate us, we recognize in them. Even though our individual faults may be different, we recognize in them a common bond of need that pulls us toward one another. A universal need for unconditional love and forgiveness that is offered to us in Christ. 
Love without conditions means we don't always have to agree, but we do always have to accept and embrace one another as fellow human beings created in the image of God and redeemed together by Jesus. A generational perspective, a political position, hear this, even a theological conviction must never be the catalyst to devalue or disown another person. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. They must be practiced together to affirm the presence of Christ in each other. To love another person like Jesus means we may disagree, but we refuse to abandon the relationship. A person is always more important than a principle. Love without conditions means becoming a community that stands up that speaks out, that counters any rhetoric, every action, and all laws that seek to deny or take away the dignity, worth, or value of another brother or sister, even if he or she declares themselves to be our professed enemy. Oh man, now we're, now we're stirring some things, right? But hear me. Hear not me, hear Jesus. Jesus didn't command us to love our enemies once they became our friends. Jesus taught and modeled for us to love our enemies even while they are crucifying us. Whoa. It's not our job to change or fix people. Some of you need to hear this, man. You need to hear this. It's not our job to change or fix people. That's God's work, not ours. You hearing me? That's God's work, not ours. You will never change or fix another person. And if you think you have, you're wrong. You just messed them up. You just made it worse. It's not our job to change or fix people. That is God's work, not ours. And the Lord, by the way, has great experience in the life change department. Fantastic experience. Incredible resume. Our track record, when we personally try to change another person or corporately, legislatively try to fix people, our track record is a big mess of alienation, abuse, and pain. Our responsibility is not to change or fix people. Our responsibility is to love people, to accept and embrace others as friends, and to share this journey of faith with them for them, not against them. I've laid a lot, of, a lot of groundwork here, but now, really quickly, let's talk about what this practically looks like in our community. Let's just talk about our community here at Grace. <laughs> I love our combined services. I think we are better together. If I had my way, and it's not about my way, if I had my way, we would worship like this all the time. And I'll be honest with you, I've been waiting for some of you to come and say, why aren't we? And you're not. You're tolerating what we're doing. Some of you aren't here, and you're not tolerating what we're doing. So I've started to broach the question, what if we were to do this all the time? And you know what's interesting? The immediate, the immediate response is, well, what about me? I, I don't like this, or I'm not comfortable with that, or this is not what I'm used to, or I grew up this way, or you know what, I like to come earlier, or I like to come later. What about me? And then when I kind of respond, well, well, maybe it's not just about you. Well, what about them? What are they going to give up? What are they going to change? 
What are they going to sacrifice? Notice how our conversation becomes us versus them. We're never going to do this on a regular basis. Never. And I'm not going to force it because you can't change or fix people, right? (laughs) I'm never going to force it. But what I'm hoping you will continue to hear, because I'll just keep preaching the word of God until until I run out of breath or I die. I'm going to keep preaching the word of God, which tells us that we is more important than me. We is more important than me. I always look at our time together, time like this, like Sunday family dinner. You know, we're all busy. Life's crazy. Some families still do this. It's like, you know what? We never can seem to get together. So Sunday night, we're going to get together and have dinner together as a family. This is Sunday family dinner. We're all going in different, coming from different places. I want us to all come together and sit down at the table. You've done that. I want us, this is, this is fundamentally about seeing each other, being together, getting to know each other. You can't do that when you're separated between two services. Imagine if you thought about this like Sunday dinner. Imagine having Sunday dinner and turning somebody away. I'm sorry, we don't have any room. Sorry. No, I'm sorry, the table's full. I can't imagine any of you would do that. Someone knocks on your door. Imagine arguing over the time of the meal. Oh, well, I'm not coming to Sunday dinner if it's at 5 o'clock. I'm not coming if it's at 7 o'clock. I got to get to bed early. Imagine debating the kind of food that's being served. Well, I don't like that casual food you serve. That casual food, that's just empty calories. I like more fancy, you know, traditional kind of meals. Imagine arguing about the way the table is set, the way people are seated. I mean, somewhere I would imagine, maybe some of you do argue about this, but I imagine someone would say, hey, 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 the most important thing is we're together. The most important thing is we're together. You know what? All this other stuff, we can figure this out, but what matters is we are more important than me. We got to figure this out. And I'm telling you, this is a major thing for us because if we can't figure this out, and I know all the reasons, come, you, you can keep telling me, you're just, you're set in your ways, this is just, you can't, what, you can keep telling me, but until we are we rather than me, we can't go beyond what Jesus is calling us to. Because this, what we just talked about, is nothing compared to the next level. And we can't even get there if we can't figure this out. And what's the next level? is how do we deal with out there? If we're us versus them in here, how are we not going to be us versus them out there? How are we going to engage the political, social, economic, generational differences that exist in our world today? I'm going to ask you a hard question. I'm going to shock some of you. You know, it's, it, this, is the, this is the thing. <laughs> when we say everyone's welcome, yes, Chris, love without questions, amen, Chris. Here's the question. Is someone who is gay welcome here? Really? Will we love them? Will we be fine with them sitting here? When they want to get involved in our community, will we start to go, whoa, 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 whoa. Stand in the corner and observe. But we've got rules. Careful. I hear you saying yes, and I love hearing it, but really, really think about it, because here's the thing, people. I happen to know there are people in this community who have people who are LGBTQ in their lives. Some of them have told you And some of them have not, and they haven't told you because they're afraid of what you will say, how you will treat them. That's being honest. 
We can say yes, but until we actually live a yes, it's a different thing. Is someone who shares, doesn't share our political views welcome here? Will we love them? Uh, you know, <laughs> guys are great. Fantastic. If that's true, then when you speak, be careful how you speak like you think you're speaking for everyone. When you pray for the Republican Party, keep in mind you're implying that God is against the Democratic Party. And if you pray for the Democratic Party, keep in mind if you don't mention the Republican Party that you're implying something. When you speak and imply, well, obviously every intelligent person thinks this way. Anyone who loves Jesus, clearly this is how they're going to vote. we got an election coming up. Are we having those conversations? I don't think so. I know many of you have different political points of view, but we've all, we've all been educated. Well, that's just not, we don't talk about that in church. Where the heck are we going to talk about it? Is someone who is culturally different, who sees the world, who was raised differently, who doesn't necessarily believe in Jesus or follow Christ the way we do, are they welcome here? Will we love them? Are you sure? Are you sure? Or if someone comes in here that doesn't look right, that doesn't do it right, that doesn't use the code words, the phrases, we go, you know, there's something a little off about them. We're going to have to keep an eye on them because, you know, they don't know the Lutheran lingo. You know, the thing is, when I ask these questions, I'm pushing you, but here's the thing, and and this is what gets me. This is what gives me hope, but it also tugs my heart. The issue of sexual orientation, the issue of political views, the issue of cultural differences, and we could go on. We figure this out. We're wrestling through this in our families. I know it. I've talked to you. We figure this out. We wrestle through this in our families. We figure out how disagreement doesn't necessarily mean a lack of acceptance, We figure out how to love without conditions. I've heard powerful stories from you of how you are working this out in your families. And my thing is, it's time to start being serious about having these conversations and figuring this out as the family of God, the church. There's a fundamental disconnect that we're figuring it out elsewhere, but when we get here, it's sort of like this, well, let's just not bring it up. Let's not talk about it. And if someone does, like Jesus, we need to start treating people like actual people. People are more than projects to be fixed. People are more than objects for conversion. People are to be loved and cared for, protected and defended as children of God. Like Jesus, let's embrace rather than fight over the tension between us. I'm serious. Can we start talking about this stuff? Can we talk about it? Really talk about it and be honest. Be honest with what we think we know and what we don't know. Be honest with where we feel conflicted. Can we have these conversations rather than, man, this is a great donut today. Man, I love that song by the choir, and I know it's going to be a great song, but let's start having the conversations we're not having. Let's sit down together over a meal and listen to each other. Yeah, let's celebrate the Dodgers, but then let's actually start listening to each other. Developing friendships based upon who we are as people from our experiences, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, and developing friendships based on who Jesus is to us and for us. 
Church, we got to stop selling, trying to sell Jesus like he's a brand. And we have to start talking about Jesus as someone you've encountered, that you're personally learning from day by day. We need to introduce others to Christ, not as an escape from getting out of hell, but we need to start introducing others to Christ as we've experienced him, as he's welcomed us and loved us without conditions, and therefore we go and do likewise. It's not going to be easy. That's why it's hard. Love never is easy. Love is never easy. And it's not going to be neat and tidy. And we all like our neat and tidy, man. But grace is messy. If you haven't figured that out, then you don't know grace. Grace is messy. But if we trust Jesus and follow him, if we trust Jesus and follow him, there can be redemption and restoration in our fractured relationships. There will be transformation, deep healing, greater intimacy. Yes, unity in the midst of our diversity in how we live together as a community. I know, man, I know it's a broken, complex, messy, violent, and yet wonderful world. God's mercy-filled grace infuses our broken world with a goodness that if we let it keep surprising us with joy and healing. God's grace calls us to faithfully love him and our neighbor above all else because we are all sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. We are all beloved sons and daughters of God. We all look like our heavenly father. We all bear the indelible impression of our creator, his breath in our lungs. Because when we love without conditions, everyone is not welcome. When we love with conditions, everyone is not welcome. Hear that. When we love with conditions, everyone is not welcome. If we only love those who love us, we have little to offer a world that is deeply and antagonistically divided amongst so many fault lines. But true love, perfect love, love like Jesus has no exception clause. Beloved, if we truly believe that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, then let's follow Jesus by not separating anyone from Christ's love. And that means everyone is welcome here.